are we making life much harder for ourselves by trying to reach happiness through an outdated way of thinking? Have we got happiness all wrong and what makes us happy? Well, my next guest, Ryan Bush, author of the hit book, Designing the Mind, says he has found a formula which could transform our lives by updating the way we think about what makes us truly happy. And he's presented it in his brand new book, Become Who You Are, a new theory of self-esteem, human greatness, and the opposite of depression. So if you're interested in upgrading your mindset, then you seriously need to listen to this conversation. And welcome, Ryan Bush. How are you? I'm doing great, Paul. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I think this is going to be a very interesting conversation because uh, I've got your new book, which I'm just going to show here for anyone who's looking at this on YouTube, uh, Become Who You Are. And I like what it says in the middle, uh, a new theory of self-esteem, human greatness, and the opposite of depression. I mean, this is a powerful title. What inspired this book? Where are we going with this? Oh, that's a that's a big question. There's a lot of different yeah. angles that have sort of all come together uh, to result in this book. I mean, one thread has been studying practical philosophy, uh, thinkers like Stoicism and, and Nietzsche and seeing parallels and convergences across all these different traditions and trying to figure out what's, what's sort of at the center, the intersection of all that. Uh, another is a lot of uh, psychological research and clinical and evolutionary and cognitive psychology. Uh, and another is kind of my own personal experiences, some of my own mental health struggles and, and uh, allowing that to sort of uh, piece together a lot of those separate insights I had been studying all these years. Lovely. Well, great answer. Because I think, you know, so many places we could start with this. Um, but, I, you know, we're going to dive straight, uh, you know, straight in because if you you know, if you, it's a great book. It's so detailed. There's a lot there for anyone who is interested in the book, and it, it believes it comes out in February. Um, I'm going to ask you a simple question: It's about what are we getting wrong with happiness? Why can't we maintain yeah, it? Why can't question. we hold on to it? Yeah. So, what are we getting wrong, Ryan? Yeah, th there's a book I read years ago called "Stumbling on Happiness" uh, by Dan Gilbert, and it. Uh, basically says we're all really bad at this. We're bad at predicting what's going to make us happy. We're bad at achieving mm. it. Uh, and so we all, all kind of feel like we're stumbling around. And, um, you know, he, he sort of chalks this up to a number of uh, affective forecasting biases, a number of, you know, just general flaws in our thinking and, and prediction methods. But I have always suspected there was some deeper sort of layer under the surface that could explain it. Uh, more clearly. And I started using this mm. three-dimensional metaphor to kind of illustrate a lot of this. And so uh, if you imagine there's a chessboard sitting on the table in front of you, uh, and there's there's sort of two axes on this two-dimensional board. The x-axis is, you know, pleasure and pain. So on, further right on the chessboard is pleasure, further left is pain. Uh, and this is sort of one dimension of our well-being that we're always navigating. Uh, then there's the second dimension, which is sort of a closer to you or further away, the y-axis, and that is loss and gain. And so uh, closer mm. to you or down is sort of the uh, loss and, and further away from you is success and gain and, and possessions and just good things uh, on paper about your life. 
And what I've argued is, you know, we kind of grow out of just navigating using pleasure and pain when we're children. You know, we learn that we can make sacrifices. We can sort of go through discomfort and struggle for a little while to achieve more gain. But mostly we navigate on this two-dimensional plane. And this is sort of the map we're always using. And uh, the problem with that is sometimes that works out and, and other times... Uh, it doesn't quite map onto our actual well-being. We'll have some experience that causes a lot of pleasure and seems like success. You know, maybe we win the lottery and uh, we think that's the best thing that could ever happen to us. And then, you know, data shows actually lot lottery winners aren't any happier uh, shortly after they win the lottery than they were before. And, and it's kind of like, well, this was the map that said we were going to be happy after this. Maybe there's something wrong with the map. Similarly, we can look at you know, people who have really seemingly terrible things happen to them, they very often come out of it stronger, they, they end up feeling uh, better. And it's hard to explain why they end up saying that this is the best thing that ever happened. I'm glad I lost my job or went through this divorce. And, uh, mm -hmm. and so what I've argued is that we really have a pretty bad sort of default map in our heads about how happiness is actually attained and what constitutes the good life. So if that's the case, What's the right map? What should we be using to navigate instead? Mm -hmm. And I suggest that we can sort of imagine extruding mountains and valleys out of this chessboard and turning it into a three-dimensional topographical chessboard, if you will. And so as we are navigating, sort of using just two dimensions, what's actually happening in this hidden third dimension is that we're moving up and down these mountains and valleys uh, that we aren't even noticing or paying enough attention to. And that's really what's uh, determining our, our well-being or our sense of life satisfaction, that, that things are right in our lives and with us. Um, and, and the word I use to describe this third dimension, uh, at least initially, is admirability and, and specifically mm -hmm. self-admiration. So regardless of what we're going through, whether it's a seemingly a good, you know, positive thing in our lives that's very pleasurable or it's very uncomfortable and there's suffering and loss, uh, we have opportunities to act in a way that we ourselves would be proud of, that we will admire ourselves for, or that we would admire someone else for. Uh, and these break down to individual traits very often uh, that we might call virtues or signature strengths. And ultimately, uh, I've argued that there's sort of a mechanism in our brains that's always monitoring us, regulating our moods according to what it sees and, and what evidence we have for our own greatest strengths. And so, while we're going around chasing, you know, what seems like a good life on paper, uh, the reason we're actually yeah. getting happier most of the time is because we're demonstrating and exercising more virtue. We, we're developing greater character and we're seeing the evidence of our own strengths and admirability in ourselves. Okay, let's unpack a little bit of that. So you're saying that if I won the lottery, um, statistically, I'm not going to be happier <laughs> if I won the lottery um going down the line i think some people listening to this might not believe that um but you're yeah. saying there's a, there's a it's because it's it's just it's just two-dimensional it's just you know lost the loss and gain part of it you now i've said i've gained something um there needs to be this other ingredient which is virtues right so so the uh the thing here that, that it's important to note is that it's not that the second dimension or the, the first two dimensions have no relevance because they're very often mm -hmm. instrumental to that third dimension. Um, so yep. for example, one possibility is that you win the lottery and you use it to, uh, you know, start this new venture that's really, you know, deeply connected with what you're good at, right? You're, you start mm -hmm. angel investing or you 
quit this mindless job that you have before and you start something new that's more interesting and makes you feel more enlivened, right? Um, you know, the other possibility is that you were already, you know, doing pretty well. You had a, a job that you kind of showed up every day and you did what you were good at. And then you win the lottery and you say, well, I don't have to work anymore. You quit your job, you, you engage in a lot of passive pleasure and you end up feeling, you know, bored and depressed and you don't really know why. Mm. Uh, so it's not so much that, you know, winning the lottery couldn't be a really good thing, but we don't understand the reasons why it is. And so it, it sort of averages out to people being the same after they win the lottery. But ultimately, it depends entirely on how you use that uh, sort of second dimensional success to serve your three dimensional virtue and, and admirability. I love that. I love that. I, I, I think a lot of there are, you know, you do read these stories of people who've won the lottery and then talk about their misery and how much has not changed and they've still gone back to their old job uh, for all sorts of reasons. And uh, so we're going into virtues and um, I was not expecting to to read about admirability and virtues when I was reading your book. Um, for anyone who's listening to this thinking, what exactly is a virtue? Could you go into a little bit more detail? Yeah, the word has a kind of uh, outdated, stuffy, preachy connotation today. So I think yeah. a lot of people tune out when you talk about it. Uh, but it's a really beautiful, just colorful, rich concept with a lot of philosophical history behind it. Uh, and it really doesn't have that much to do with moral purity necessarily, uh, like we think about. Um, you know, it, it's ultimately, uh, you know, the the term that the ancient Greeks used for virtue was arete, which often is translated to excellence. And so uh, there are a number of different types of excellences that a person can have and can exercise, right? You can be really courageous or compassionate or creative or funny or, you know, really good at showing and receiving love. And, you know, there are all these traits that that we all recognize are good, that we look at other people who have these traits and say, I admire that person for that, right? That's a good trait to have. Uh, and, and we don't pay enough attention to that when we're actually deciding how we want to live our own lives. Um, mm. But but I've argued, and, and really the ancient Greeks were arguing, even though they didn't have the data to back it up yet, that this virtue thing was deeply intertwined with happiness. They're kind of one and the same. And the more, you know, self-satisfaction that you build, the more reason you have to be proud of yourself, the better you're going to feel about your life in general and just your overall mood and sense of well-being. I, 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 I really like where this is going. And could you just describe, because I've got a list here of the, the sort of virtues that you talked about. And, you know, when you read through it, it just seems, you know, like common sense or these are good things to begin to aim for. Um, what virtues, I mean, you mentioned them in the book, can you just go through some of them to give people an idea of what sort of things they should, they could begin to look at within themselves? Sure. So my sort of top five are uh, ingenuity, wisdom, charm, uh, rationality, vision. Uh, and, and these are, you know, specific to me. Mm -hmm. What Nietzsche argued, and, and he was actually very virtue centered as well. Uh, he argued that every person has a has virtues that are unique to them and no one else. And so your particular virtue combination will be as unique as your own fingerprint. And you may come up with your own words or conceptual distinctions for them. Uh, but ultimately, it, it comes down to both what you admire in others and also what you thrive at yourself, maybe what you're naturally good at and have been since you were a child. Uh, and so, you know, it varies a lot. There are some people who are really strong in, in empathy and warmth and personability. And those are areas that I've sort of struggled with. They're not my greatest strengths, but mine are a little more intellectual and wisdom based uh, and creative. So, uh, you know, 
it, it's kind of a, a process of navigating and negotiating what you're good at and where you're able to sort of bring those out and, and share them with the world, essentially. I, I, I love yours. I mean, I was looking at uh, the lists in, in your in your book and, you know, I love wisdom, like you, wisdom, you know, it's, um, you know, I'm always having a little dive into something new. And uh, that's why one of the reasons why I loved your book, knowledge and creativity, curiosity, courage, um, humanity, you know, love and compassion that that really called out to me. And, uh, you know, that sort of modesty, self-regulation, discipline. I quite like that. And transcendence was also, mm. uh, you know, that was quite surprising to read about as well. It was, uh, but yet yeah, it's, uh, it can be, you know, spirituality, being grateful can be quite an important part of someone's life and developing that as a virtue, I think is a wonderful, can we call it a skill? Um, how would you, do, when you say someone's developing uh, this area of their life, would you call it a skill or what? how would you define it? Yeah, it, it's definitely overlapping with the concept of a skill. I, I think there's mm. something deeper about these traits that, uh, you know, even our ancestors would have admired, even, you know, regardless of which culture you go to, this is valued among human beings. That suggests there's something sort of deep in our brains that that's really paying attention to these things. You know, I'm, I'm really good at like CAD software, like uh, design software, but that's not really something we evolved to be good at necessarily. That's not something anyone would care about in, in a, you know, a tribal indigenous uh, community. And so ultimately, I think virtues are a little bit deeper and they sort of transcend uh, simple skills that are maybe valuable for, you know, profit-based reasons in our modern society, but not necessarily uh, universally admired in humans. And what was, you mentioned you know, in, in your book that you struggled yourself. This is how your wonderful work has come to light, really, is uh, for your own struggles. I think it'd be nice for to create some context of what you've gone through and how these virtues have helped you. So you got a bit of your story would be very gratefully received. Of course, yeah. So I, I sort of start the story in the book uh, several years ago when I was uh, working a job as a product designer I had gone part-time in order to work on my first book. Um, and uh, I was in this position where, you know, the first book wasn't done and I was struggling to get it out there. Uh, I was sort of becoming alienated at my job. Uh, the work I was doing was no longer what I was really good at. I was kind of doing tedious engineering work at this point that, um, you know, frankly, I was pretty bad at. And, uh, you know, I, I had coworkers that were sort of taking a dislike to me, one in particular who sort of, um, you know, antagonized me a little bit and, and at one point diagnosed me essentially with autism without any solicitation. So that wow. was, uh, and then I started grappling with that diagnosis myself. And, and so there was a lot going on during this period. And that was before a global pandemic hit, which rarely makes things better. And so all this mm. sort of resulted in, in finding myself in a place in my life for the first time where I really didn't have a lot of evidence of what I was great at, of what made me sort of uh, really admire me. Um, my creativity, my wisdom, you know, my charm, all these things that I had always valued and had always been able to consciously or not bring into my life, uh, they were kind of shut down for various reasons during this time. And so I was, um, I, I say I dipped into the valley, valleys of virtue and my self-esteem uh, started to go down and my mood went along with it. I, I found myself in a kind of mild, mild to moderate depression for the first time in my life. Uh, and this is as I was writing a book, kind of teaching principles about how not 
to let this happen. So, uh, you know, the irony is always great as a writer, but, um, you know, that, yeah. that, that, uh, that feel to have, it all kind of, how did that feel to be writing about something, uh, you know, on, on that subject, but yet experiencing that for yourself, what, what was that like for you? Uh, well, I think a part of it felt kind of ashamed, like this shouldn't be happening mm. to me. You know, I shouldn't be worried about other people's opinions or, or, you know, I should know I'm, you know, these thoughts I'm having are irrational. And on many levels, I think uh, the ideas I, I was writing about and had been studying were very helpful and prevented me from, you know, going into a more severe kind of depression. I think uh, having studied cognitive behavioral, for example, uh, cognitive mm. behavioral therapy, and knowing uh, that people who are struggling with depression do very often have these irrational, distorted beliefs, uh, knowing on some level that what I was coming to believe about myself wasn't really true, I think that helped a lot. Uh, the the ability to go in and, and examine those beliefs and find uh, you know reasons why they may not be fully rational, I think that's great. But ultimately, I think uh, you know our lives really, really we learn most from doing and from actual life experience and uh it's hard to you know over overrule that using thought and rationality alone so uh you know the, those ideas didn't fully save me from this struggle and and i also think part of that comes down to this theory that i put together in this book and and how all these things piece together and so i, I think it really fostered a deeper understanding of mental health than the one i uh share in the first book mm. And I, you know, and, um, honestly, I really appreciate you sharing your story. And what is it, uh, you know, you talk about depression in your book. And um, I think it'd be nice for listeners to hear this, because what are we getting wrong about depression? What is it that is out of date or needs to be debunked in your view? Yeah, well, there's one view in particular that, um, you know, not a lot of actual clinical psychologists actually buy into, but it's sort of taken off in popular culture, which is the idea that there is just a simple sort of random chemical imbalance that just happens to occur in some people's brains, maybe for genetic reasons, you know, whatever it is. Uh, and essentially, you just have a serotonin deficiency. And that's that's all depression is, right? Um, you yeah. just need to go get a pill and, and fix it. And and the reality is that the the data on current antidepressant medication is really bleak. I mean, there's, you can't find any study that makes it seem like it's significantly more effective than a placebo. Uh, and this is the best we have today. And for some reason, I think just the, the appeal of a, a quick fix of a simple pill you can take causes people mm. to sort of demonstrate wishful thinking and, and think that, oh, th this will work. All I, you know, I just have an imbalance. I just have to correct it. Uh, and really, I think these are, you know, really dynamic, elaborate systems in our brains that are adapting to these things. So, you know, if there's a, if, you know, maybe it is true that low serotonin is associated with depression, which seems to be the case. Well, if you take a pill, you, you know, there's probably a reason why your brain is uh, putting you in this state. And so if you take a pill mm -hmm. to elevate depression, uh, elevate serotonin, your brain's sort of going to adapt to that. And over time, uh, it's going to lower back down and you're going to wonder why the pills became less effective and, and why you're experiencing these side effects that are very often connected with them. Um, and so the the question I'd sort of ask and, and end up backing up from a lot of different 
angles is, you know, what if depression is actually there for a reason? What if it's an adaptation? And by that, I don't mean that it's good for us. It, it, I don't mean that we need to go through it. I mean that from an evolutionary standpoint, what if it's there for a particular function uh, and, and to create a certain state and, and produce certain behaviors? And there's a lot of reason to think that it is. You know, it doesn't work the same way pathologies typically do. For example, most uh, most diseases or pathologies get more common with age as your mm. you know organs are sort of aging and, and uh, you know depression, most people who experience it have it in their early 20s for the first time. Um, and you know there, there are a lot of things like this that sort of yield us yield the uh, the conclusion that it may be there for a particular function. Uh, if we look at self-esteem and its connection to depression, uh, they are highly mm. correlated. There's pretty much no one who's depressed and, you know, has a really positive view of themselves. Uh, people who are severely depressed pretty much invariably think they are worthless, incompetent, unlovable, uh, really terrible things. And there's more evidence suggesting that the low self-esteem sort of comes first and depression comes later than, than the other way around. And, uh, mm. So that leads to this conclusion that, that's known as the sociometer theory in, in evolutionary science, which says that, you know, ultimately our self-esteem is here to simulate our social esteem. It's here to maximize our social standing and our ultimate social outcomes. Um, and so if we don't approve of ourselves, that's probably a sign that other people aren't going to approve of us either. And so it may not be good for us to be putting ourselves out there to, to be failing to learn from the feedback we're getting. Right. It, it may be best for us to kind of lay low, uh, withdraw socially, be with, you know, socially risk averse. And this uh, this is essentially what we find in depression. The you know really terrible mood and, and self-beliefs are kind of just a, a really tragic byproduct of this regulatory mechanism in our brain, or at least that's how the, the theory goes. Yeah, no, I love the example you gave in the book of, um, you know, if, if you know, if you're doing something wrong in a social group depression can kick in to help you realize and help you motivate you in a way not to do it again so that you can remain within right. that group otherwise behavior remains unchecked doesn't it it's we don't have any sort of feedback really um even if people if people were sort of you know quite negative about what you've done unless you feel something about that then you're just going to repeat it exactly and and on a small scale this probably wouldn't result in you know, full blown, what we would call depression. It, it may just no. sort of create a, a minor change in our mood that would set us straight and, and put us back on the path of sort of aligning mm. with our values and, and those of our tribe. But uh, when, when everything you do seems to be, you know, not working, it may require a, a large scale sort of re-strategizing and overhaul in, in the, your virtue mm. strategy and the way you're showing up in your life. And I think that is where your mood kind of just keeps declining and you keep moving lower on this well-being scale. I think, uh, you know, there probably is a reason for it. And, and that means it's probably it probably was good for our genes in the world of our ancestors. Uh, we're not our genes. We have, you know, we're more concerned with our own well-being than our genes mm -hmm. survival. And we also don't live in the same world that our ancestors did. So there are a lot of reasons why we shouldn't necessarily just embrace depression as a good thing. Uh, but I think we should strive to understand it and and how it may have evolved to function. No, I, I'm wondering, do you think it's 
I mean, you know, you know, if we resist depression and not see it as a good thing, maybe that in itself causes more of a problem. But just by beginning to accept it as in, what is it? Because if it's pointing at your virtues or your, your character, your admirability, not really being in the right place, then it's, isn't that a good thing? If it's saying that there needs to be some some change within, you know, your, you know, your socializing within the way that you see yourself, you know, what's happened for you to have, you know, a, a negative opinion of yourself, but also not to get the good positive feedback to help you get an idea of who you are. Yeah. I mean, ultimately it's, it's kind of like the fear of heights in a way, like, uh, you know, we have this fear that prevents us from falling off cliffs and hurting ourselves. And when we do, we have this pain response that tells us not to do it again. But ideally you would just, you would just rationally be able to say, uh, you know, I should not jump off of cliffs. Um, and so if you, if you can't avoid the sort of mood response, not experience the negative uh, reactions, but still learn from what they are trying to show, that's ideal. Yeah. And so it's it's better to avoid depression yeah. and simply learn oh. uh, what that mood state might be trying to teach us. Um, but ultimately, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I do think if if you're finding that you're not feeling deeply fulfilled in your life, whether that's just kind of being at a, a mediocre state or falling into a depression, I think it is best that you learn from that and start thinking about your virtues. Start asking, how do I need to change my life or my self-perceptions and beliefs so, so that I do start seeing evidence of what I'm great mm. at and I do start seeing myself as an admirable person. And, and, and this is what happened for you. Is this what you know, began to pull you out of what you know uh, your own depressive state at the time? That is essentially how I interpret it. Yes, I, I you know, for one thing, uh, anytime you're in a place that, you know, you think is having a toxic effect on you, uh, the best, you know, therapeutic advice is to leave and get out of that, whether it's a job or a relationship. Mm. Um, you know, ultimately, I did end up leaving that job that I was at part time. I switched to another part time gig that was a total 180. I mean, I, I was, you know, producing creative work that was really valued and that, you know, I was able to see what I'm good at every single week at this new startup that I joined. I also, you know, got that book out, which uh, just just getting that out there and getting it to a place that I was proud of it, uh, that in itself was uh, a huge sort of relief. But then also the, the success the book had essentially created a whole new uh, vessel for me to pour my strengths into. And so Designing yeah. the Mind and Mindform, the, the online community that I've built around it, really has given me the ultimate opportunity to bring everything I'm good at into one place. And so really, it's, it's an, on a daily basis, I'm able to see all these different things that I'm good at that I've never really had one opportunity to, to exercise them all in. And so I think that's sort of the, the holy grail of this virtue uh, you know, journey, if you can build some kind of vessel that allows you to not just bring out one or two strengths, but almost everything you're good at in one place, uh, that that's a really beautiful thing. I, you know, I'm all for this. And um, yeah, I think it's beautiful in regards to what you've almost like self-realized to, you know, to help yourself get to where you are today. How can someone discover more about their virtues? You know, is there like a little list and they just go down it and say that? Well, that sounds good to me. Or is there something a bit more precise maybe that would help them? Yeah. So the, the list I provide in the book uh, is a great place to start. That is Martin Seligman's uh, and Christopher Peterson's work on virtues, where they studied different cultures uh, and, and only wrote down the ones that 
essentially are found in every culture um, and, and are universally admired. And, and they came out with a list of 24 that they split into six. And so, um, you know, it's, it's by no means definitive. I argue that it's a spectrum. There's not really a finite number of virtues, just like there aren't a finite number of colors. Uh, but, you know, we have to start somewhere with this. And so if you go to Martin Seligman's website uh, and you, uh, you find the signature strengths test, this is a, a great starting point. You fill this out and it'll tell you, uh, you know, your top five virtues, right? This is what you're already good at, essentially. Um, another way to determine that is by just asking the people in your life. They will very often, uh, you know, it's kind of an uncomfortable thing to ask. So you can text them and be like, hey, this is for a, a course or a podcast or whatever. This is a book I'm reading. What do you think I'm mm -hmm. good at? They will often surprise you and tell you things you didn't even realize. Mm -hmm. And you'll say, oh, wow, yeah, I have always been good at that. I never thought about it that way. Um, so that's in terms of what you're already good at. Another angle I think you should take is to look at the people you admire most. Look at the people in your life. Look at the historical figures, the fictional characters, whoever it is, uh, and, and write down uh, a list of these people and specifically the individual traits that you admire about them. You're never going to admire mm. everything about one person. We all have flaws. But if you write down, I like how this person deals with conflict. I like how this person, you know, finds a way to appreciate everything that's happening to them. Right. Uh, you know, you can create a, a really great list of the things you admire in others. And that sort of creates a blueprint for where you need to go next, how you can become who you are, essentially, uh, is the, the meaning behind the title. And so finding where those virtues and those values overlap, finding how the things you're already good at and the things you admire in others can come together so that you can admire yourself in that same way. Uh, this is what I've argued will, will really bring the most uh, improvement in well-being, and, and it maps pretty perfectly onto my experience. I don't know about yours, but when I look at the best and worst times of my life, mm -hmm. this lines up pretty much perfectly the you know the the highest points in my life have always been those where i was you know every single day giving myself reason to see this is what i'm good at this is where i really thrive mm. and uh vice versa no i no I, I agree with you on that and just recognizing i think it's really important to get that sense of self and have an idea of you know we're going to talk about it in a bit but um our self-image and the way that we perceive ourselves um kind of important if you want to you know do well in life if you or otherwise if you have a negative self-image and Im we can talk a little bit more about um the image we have tends to be a bit illusionary but in in a sense we can strengthen mm -hmm. our sense of self through experience and, and i was wondering how did you when you got your when you found out your virtues and you're beginning to explore them how did you strengthen them so they became you know part of your life and not just something that was a list yeah so i think the answer to this depends on where you're at in the process and so mm. if you are sort of at the bottom of the scale if you're in a, a dark place you're in a kind of deep depression and you really are caught in this vicious cycle where you know one you're not really going out and taking behaviors that make you proud of yourself two as a result you're not seeing evidence and so you're you're developing these negative beliefs three that those beliefs are putting you in a bad mood and then completing the cycle that bad mood is making you not want to go out and do anything uh and so this kind of keeps you trapped and and there are a couple leverage points mm -hmm. um for for actually getting in there and changing that cycle 
And one of the best is behavioral activation. This is not talked about nearly enough, I think, because it's just so simple. It doesn't seem like it could be that powerful. But the, the data <laughs> suggests it really is. Basically, you create a schedule for yourself uh, and you just commit yourself to this schedule. You're just going to do what's on this list every day. And, and that might be just get out of bed and take a shower if you're at the bottom of the scale. Um, but you want to take baby steps and just challenge yourself a little bit until, you know, now you're going out for a walk every day and you're cleaning up your room and then you're reading a book and you're calling a friend. And eventually you kind of work your way out of this cycle and you start giving yourself more and more reason to admire yourself. You, you start acting out your values. Initially, mm -hmm. it's really small, but, you know, exercising shows you that you've got discipline. That That's great. That's going to boost your mood. Reading shows that you've got, you know, either aesthetic appreciation or intellect, whatever kind of thing you're reading, that's going to boost your mood. And, and so you're gradually going to climb your way up until you're able to say, I'm, I'm at a healthy place, but I want to go higher. And I think this is where we really have to focus on crafting virtue domains, I call them. So looking at the things like work and your relationships and communities and hobbies and and saying, how can I design this to be a better avenue for my greatest strengths? You know, can I make a job change or a career change uh, or just talk to my boss and see how we can change my role a little bit? Um, you know, is this a healthy mm. relationship for me to be in? Do I need to leave this relationship? Can we talk about it and make it a better relationship? Um, but essentially strategizing your life based on what will give you the greatest virtue exercise opportunities. Um, and and then, then past there, you can start thinking about, can I create some new way to bring all my strengths together? Can I found an organization, a charity, a business, something that I can pretty much rig in my own favor and design around what I'm really good at? Uh, and so the, the strategy scale, but I think it is one continuous process. No, I, I love that. And I, I really do, uh, you know, heartily endorse what you've just said about behavioral activation because you know without it you know because you know there's a lovely statistic on um 90 of our thoughts are repeats of our past yeah and unless we create new thoughts then literally we're just going to keep reliving like a groundhog day you know 10 percent of something new mm -hmm. um so uh, you know, behavior activation creates new experiences, new thoughts, new feelings. And it, it can just, again, the more you try new things, the more you get to experience new thoughts. And therefore, you, you know, you begin to create a new reality for yourself. So, uh, but yeah, it's not talked about enough, is it? I, you know, you know, again, it's, I think that I think that Atomic Habits by James Clear would really help someone if they're thinking, how do I get these habits into place? Because uh, they can also like a good yeah, intention, yeah. but a lot of people listening to this will be thinking, yeah, but I just don't somehow get to manage it because they're relying on willpower alone to try and even make a small change. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that it need there needs to be other things to happen to help that small change, you know, take place. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and yeah, another no, one no. that uh, that I would recommend, Mind Over Mood, uh, great book to, that talks about behavioral activation, but it also talks about cognitive restructuring and what you're talking about in, in terms of you know creating new thoughts it can be really good mm -hmm. to examine your existing thoughts and essentially learn what's what's wrong with them what's distorted about this belief mm -hmm. that i'm holding uh, and that can be really good too you know some people really are living out you know their own values if you asked anyone around them they'd say oh they're amazing they're, everyone loves them they're great at what they do uh, but they've developed these really distorted beliefs for one reason or another and they can't see it 
And so not everyone who's depressed is stuck in bed. Some people just don't know, um, you know, why. And, and very often it is those beliefs, those thoughts they keep having that are, you know, just not accurate, but they have to go in and actually examine them in order to change them. And so just, just keeping a log of your thoughts and specifically the thoughts that tend to produce bad moods for you, you might find mm. that kind of like you said, 90% of your bad moods are triggered by this one completely false distorted thought that you just haven't ever gone in and really examined critically. Mm. No, I, again, it's cognitive distortions. I, I, I see them as I saw them listed in your book, you know, from generalizing to catastrophizing, uh, you know, uh, mind reading, fortune telling. They're, they're good indicators that your thinking is probably, I don't know if the word faulty is a good word, but it's just an idea that there's something not quite uh, truthful about what you're thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there, there are 10 kind of most common Oh, sorry. Yeah. We're a little delayed here, but um, yeah, yeah. yeah there, okay. there are 10 sort of most common distortions that uh, that David Burns has listed out that can be really helpful to kind of memorize and, and go through pretty often. I wanted to ask you, because we are uh, short on time, I wanted to ask you, I really liked what you said about autism and ADHD in your book, you know, neuro neurodivergency and, you know, the way that it often has been portrayed as if there's something wrong with someone, like it's a disorder. And what you're talking about is something um, I think would be more helpful. So could you just, uh, in a nutshell, uh, describe, uh, um, you know, your experience of autism maybe, but also how you see it now, you know, based on what you're describing in the book. So I think it'd be very helpful for people listening. Yeah. So like I said, I had someone sort of suggest that I was autistic and ended up doing a lot of research and uh, ended up kind of agreeing with that diagnosis and saying, mm -hmm. well, I, I maybe didn't, you know, know that much about this condition. And, and that's why I never really considered it before. But like this adds up and certainly the social struggles go back to seventh grade for me and, um, you know, have, have often noticed that I think very differently from most people. Uh, and, and there were a couple of things that didn't quite add up about it, though, that, you know, if this is such a uh, disease or, or disorder, how has it been preserved in the gene pool? Why, why are people, uh, you know, continuing to, you know, some would say increasingly, but I think just consistently uh, being autistic and, and same for ADHD and other mm. neurotypes. Uh, and the other one was, was how come these people very often seem to have really unique, uh, really valuable strengths? You know, there are a lot of a lot of the most successful, you know, people out there do have these very different types of brains. Uh, so is it right for us to conceptualize them as disorders? Uh, I, I spent a little while sort of trying to conceptualize this as, as sort of a side road of this overall theory. And, and I ended up finding more and more evidence in support of this idea. Uh, if you look at something known as balancing selection or, or feedback um, or frequency dependent selection, uh, this is where, you know, animals will, you know, very often that you'll see species that, uh, you know, they're, they're all kind of the same in a certain way. So their their feathers, their plumage, their coloring, whatever. And then there will be a certain small segment uh, that will come out looking really different, right? There will be guppies that have, you know, these really colorful, uh, you know, patterns on them and, and they'll stand out and, and they're sort of preserved at a particular frequency to where only 5% of the population will have these different colorations. Uh, and I started saying, well, what if this is kind of similar? Because 
you know, these stay at a small percent of the population because they are rare and they are only valuable or admirable when they're rare um, or they only work for some other reason. You know, an, an, an example of this is like psychopaths, sociopaths. Uh, they're only present in a small percent of the population because if it becomes more common, then people start just not trusting each other. And so it doesn't work as a strategy anymore. Uh, but at a certain mm. percent, it's rare enough to where it can thrive. Uh, for people with autism or ADHD, right, it's not, uh, it's not about uh, deceiving people. It's just about having a rare trade-off of strengths or virtues, right? And so thinking in a really different way uh, can be a strength and can be admirable and can attract allies and mates to you, even if you struggle in another area, uh, whether that's, you know, social skills or executive functioning or whatever. Uh, and, and sure enough, we often find that uh, autistic people are some of the most, you, you know, analytical or creative thinkers. Uh, people with ADHD are often some of the most uh, interesting, funny, charismatic people you'll ever meet. Um, and mm. so, yeah, a, a lot of this adds up. There's essentially a trade-off where it ends up being worth it evolutionarily on average for a person to have these uh, challenges. I think that's, I love how you put that. I really, really do. Um, and I think, it's, yeah, I think anyone who re who reads your book will find out more about your perspectives and how to use virtues um, in all of these areas and how it's been working for you. And um, I just want to congratulate you on, a, on, a, on an amazing resource. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, I wanted to talk to you about so many different things. I also write down so many questions and I don't get to, to, to go through them. Um, but thank you so much for coming on to the show, Ryan. And um, I hope a lot of people listening to this are inspired enough to go and pre-order or buy your book, which is out shortly. Uh, Become Who You Are by Ryan uh, Bush. I will put a um, I will put links into the show notes. Um, and also, you mentioned a um, a test that people can do, and I'm sure people were thinking, I want to do that test. So if you could send me that link, right, and, and I'll pop it into the show notes as well. You know, send me anything you want me to pop in that people would find people would find helpful, and then I'll pop it there for you. I will send that and I will say too, I'll send you another link that will get uh, people a couple of free books that I'll send you over email, uh, the Psychotext right. Toolkit and the Book of Self Mastery, uh, which is kind of a quote book I put together. So uh, I'll give you the link Amazing. for that and people can go there. Um, but uh, yeah, overall, thank you for having me and for the kind words. I, I really appreciate it. And I, I enjoyed the conversation a lot. Oh, no, thank you so much. And to those listening, uh, thank you so much for joining me for another episode. I will look forward to connecting with you in a new episode. Mm -hmm.